0: This is a Media Lab podcast. Oh, Dave, I am so glad we never have to meet each other ever again after this week.
1: I didn't want to say it out loud, but uh, this is probably the best day of my life. Yeah,
0: I know. Like, we're free from this machine. It wants us to wrap up our show. We never have to reference message in a bottle ever again.
1: I don't even know what you're talking about. I won't acknowledge that 50
0: erase that part of our memories.
1: 51 weeks ago.
0: It feels simultaneously 51 weeks ago, uh, as well as 512 weeks ago. <laughs> Are you sad about anything?
1: Uh, you know, I'm sad that there were some weeks that we lost to shitty movies. And uh, that, uh, you know, we still haven't figured out how to turn this machine off that you created. Um, also, sure there's complete sort of lack knob. of ownership on your part, Kyle. I mean, this is entirely Uh, your fault.
0: I don't know about that. I don't know. Uh. I I would say it's about 50-50. In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine. Cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen, this monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown, and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This, this is, is Kyle and Kyle Dave versus, versus the machine. The machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. My name is Kyle.
1: I'm still Dave. And I'm The Machine.
0: This is a podcast where a sentient machine forces us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. We're not talking about a film today. We have gotten to the end of this season. Uh, this machine forced us to talk about the year 1999. We partied like it was that year. And so it also now wants us to kind of wrap it up with our final thoughts. I do want to give a good shout out to people who have helped us over on our Patreon page, specifically Green Girl YYC, who's uh, holding down the fort over there. Thank so definitely you. If you want to hear uh, additional audio as we uh, you know, wrap up this season and you know, never talk about movies ever again, as well as seeing some of the write-ups that Dave does and puts over there, one thing I thought that we should talk about here that we probably should have started this entire podcast with, but we didn't, uh, is what do our star ratings mean, Dave? Because I think one of the big things that I have noticed, I'll just speak for myself, is that you know when I rate a movie a four, and when you rate a movie a three, uh, I don't know if that means anything in context, but for me, I actually have kind of a rubric that, that I utilize when I give star ratings out. So I'm asking you: Is it just a gut feeling for you, or do you actually have an idea of like this is what a two stars means? This is what a five star means?
1: No, i I do everything with my gut. I point with my gut. I eat with it? my gut. I, yeah, I shit that. with my gut. Yeah,
0: I see that when you walk through the door, it's gut first.
1: Always gut. I mean, you got to lead with the gut. How else do you get anywhere? Tummy out. Uh, That's why I like crop tops. I just gotta <laughs> let it. Just You're wearing three be of them it. right now. Uh, no, I I don't have, I mean, to be fair, Kyle, I think I've brought up that there should be some structured way of rating this on several yeah. things and and you know you did tell me that that was absurd and now it turns out that you're secretly doing that so i'm interested to hear well, what I, your your categories are
0: mostly i didn't want like literally the final 25 minutes of every episode being like what's the on scene rating for this and like what's the director's intent for this like don't I just we already do that in conversation in i that. feel like just one rating and go for it <laughs> what i do agree with i think what you're putting towards I know I bring up a lot not that he is the be-all and end-all of film criticism but uh, Roger Ebert often talked about how his star ratings were relative and not absolute meaning it's like if I'm talking about The Sixth Sense as an example yes I'm kind of looking at that with like other horror films other films of like Bruce Willis like other Bruce Willis films other Shyamalan films like I'm using a few different things to judge that Uh, I am not necessarily being like how am I comparing this to Citizen Kane? They're just not very similar films. So why would I be comparing those two films together? So whether it's like I'm talking about a comedy or am I'm talking about a documentary versus an animated film, there's different things I'm bringing to that. So yeah, I don't know if you agree with that or not.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I don't necessarily always, I mean, yeah, I think the genre thing is important, but I think the base principle for me is whether I thought it wasted my time. And so- uh, <laughs> Yeah. I, I think in the moment, I mean, uh, there are going to be movies that I'm not in the mood for that I'll watch and later revisit and realize like, you know, either I was caught up like an Adam Sandler movie. If I'm in a just, I just need to lie down and turn my brain off. I might think it's the best thing I've ever watched. And another day where I feel like I have to turn my brain on, I will turn it off after 10 minutes and wonder why I gave it a thumbs up on Netflix. He does objectively. Make the best films. It does make my rating very irrelevant and ambiguous. However, uh, yeah, the gut feeling is when we talk about it or when I leave our couch, I just think, um, what did I just do for the last one and a half to three or four hours? Right, yeah. Um, And if it's, you know, I got something out of it, then I'm over a three. And uh, if it's like, holy fuck, like I'll never get that back. Uh, or as we've discussed, I had to turn it off several times, Blur Witch mm-hmm. Project. Uh, you know, it's gonna get lower than a one. So I think that's a loose framework. But I think the jo the genre thing's important. We need to keep yeah, I, context.
0: I know that I value rewatchability a lot when I rate things where I can say, Hey, I might have I might be able to see the artistry and the talent that's in this, but if I never ever want to watch it again, I do have a hard time saying, like, that's a perfect five out of five. For right. me, Filmmaking and films have always been. I think I just go back to a little kid when I was watching the Disney stuff, but I remember even watching like Indiana Jones on the big screen and being like, this is amazing. Like, I have such a cool time here. This is also possibly too, we fight about this uh, off mic, where I think the theatrical experience of like a Marvel film is very different than the at home experience of watching a Marvel film. And why sometimes I might have overrated certain. uh, films in the MCU, because it's like that was a phenomenal theater going experience. And you're still on that high after you come out of the theater sort of thing. So I I think there's that part you have to take into account as well.
1: Yeah, the idea of blockbuster or entertainment value is often overlooked by professional critics, I think, just because of the aura of being an intellectual. And so like you, I mean, if I saw most MCU films uh, in a theater, with the exception of you know, maybe Thor, Dark World. and There's a couple of <laughs> right. them. Well, even but, that was bad in the theater. Yeah, so, exactly. You <laughs> but, you know, if you get in there and... um I don't know. It's still 25 bucks a ticket. So, I, I'd be pretty critical in general. But, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. You get in there, yeah. You get the surround... Dolby Atmos and this fucking screen that... It's 7.1 you know, in there, yeah. yeah. Atmos is like 40... No, anyway. So, it's like... Yeah. You know, a screen that's incomprehensibly huge, you have beautiful people, like, what is it? what are the budgets now? $200 billion yeah, to like, make a uh, movie? Well, not,
0: not billion, but yeah, you're talking <laughs> about like budgets that are getting up to like $250 million just for Same. one film. It's like, yeah. that's crazy.
1: So then you leave and you're electrocuted, but then you watch something like Being John Malkovich this year, and mm-hmm. uh, that's a much more challenging, interesting, thoughtful movie. Right. Um, so how do you rate them against each other, right? Right. It's well, I love Iron Man. But it's not being John Malkovich. I don't know which right. one I like better. So
0: right, but to your point, I'm going to watch those at different times, right? Yes. I want to yeah. be intellectually challenged. I'm going to throw on being John Malkovich. I just want to be entertained for two hours. Yeah, I'm going to throw on Iron Man to watch yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, just to record it for posterity reasons. This is kind of my rubric that I'm going in my mind, uh, and then don't ask me both half stars because that is a gut feeling. <laughs> but if we're just looking at them, like a five star film for me is like a I just think that it's a great film. I want to rewatch this consistently, or I, I have rewatched it consistently. I think it's filled with great performances, or it's really funny. Whatever it is, it's a perfect film. Quote, unquote, perfect film for Kyle Marshall. A four-star film, for me, it's very, very good. But there might be something in it that just doesn't hold up where it's like there's like a performance in there that doesn't work or there's pacing problems like in the last bit of it or whatever it happens to be. There's something in it that prevents it from getting up to that full five. This is where I get a lot of pushback. So a three star film for me is something that is completely mediocre or fine, which is that it's a movie that I experienced. And I'm going to forget about in like a day after watching it. I'm literally just going to forget about it because that's different than bad. Bad films, I am going to remember and I'm going to tell you why I did not like those films and a boring film is the exact opposite. I'm going to forget about it. And that's kind of like the stasis for filmmaking to me, which is like, okay, this is going to start at a three and you have to say that I enjoyed it or like I completely hated it. So the two star film for me is like the inverse of the four stars, which is I mostly do not like this movie, but maybe there's something in there that I enjoyed, whether it is there's one single performance I actually liked or this one sequence was actually pretty fun. But by and large, it's a bad movie that I don't like. And then one is like just a terrible film. Weirdly enough, when I was looking on my letterbox, I have yet to give any film a half a star rating. You gave four films this year a half a star rating. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, for me, that would be like not only do I I like this movie, but it's like has incompetent filmmaking part of it as well, or like the sound doesn't work, or whatever. Like, there's something else that has to be there, I think, for me to go full half a star. Have I seen a half a star film in my life? Yes, I have. (laughs) I have not rated it on Letterboxd, apparently, uh, since I've been keeping track of ratings.
1: You're a hack. I mean, I don't know. I think five star for me is. Not only do I think that it's great, I think it's required viewing. So mm-hmm. if I think of a five-star movie, let's say, for example, The Matrix, in my opinion, everybody should have to watch it. Whether you'll end up liking it is irrelevant because, uh, you know, there's going to be a <laughs> yeah, plea here. Because I don't period. care about what you think. I'm just talking uh, about what I think. But I think, you know, it, it has enough in it that uh, people ought to see it. You know, point five or one is, uh, I, yeah, I'm hateful of it. I, I'm angry that I had to sit through it. Right. I would normally not have had to. And I think that it's a warning that other people uh, either shouldn't, or if you like it, we are not going to get along very well. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So if, if you, I mean, you know, we get along well, so South Park is sort of maybe the, uh, the, the big anomaly. polar issue. But yeah, if, you, if you're someone who is going to approach us and defend message in a bottle, we cannot have a conversation. Like there's no, mm-hmm. there's no middle ground. And then everything in between for me is just totally random. I'm just looking at our scores and I'm trying to, A, gauge where your threes are on the forgettable list. And, uh, and looking at my, my threes to see if there's a middle ground. You know, I think I waver in the three section mostly on this emotional feeling. Like for example, yeah. Magnolia, I was doing the prep for our social media and all those scenes are great. You know, the acting is so good, but I gave it 3.5 because it leaves me a gross taste in my mouth. So sure, uh, I'll always remember it, but um, I don't know. Yeah. Would I rate it higher today? Maybe. Maybe. Would I rate it lower tomorrow? That's, Who knows?
0: That's what I think. That's, the, that's <laughs> the fun part is like this is a snapshot in time as we go through this. Uh, we're going to take a break right now. I'm going to go thank some sponsors because we still have some sponsors that we have to uh, feed this machine with. And then when we return, we'll continue doing our wrap up of the year 1999. Hi everyone, this is just Kyle, jumping into the conversation one more time to tell you about some of the people that help make this show possible. First and foremost, uh, this conversation that you were hearing to bust out of the fourth wall, kind of like the Kool-Aid man, was recorded like a month or so ago, so it happened before two really huge events. And that's important for the second half of the conversation you're going to go into because it's going to sound a little bit weird that we don't mention a couple of things that seem to be like super obvious. Number one is Warner Brothers' decision to essentially release their entire slate of films day and date onto the HBO Max service. So that's things like Dune and uh, the new Matrix film and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That was That was announced here just over a month or so ago, I think like a day or two after we recorded this, in fact. I think we're going to change the conversation and really change what is um, part of the cultural zeitgeist. And it's really going to inform how those movies, I think, seep into our culture and if they're able to be talked about more than just like a day or two and then forgotten. You'll understand that when we get to that part of the discussion. And secondly, there was an attempted coup in the United States. And we talk about the boiling point of the United States as relation to 1999 and how that is leading to something even greater. Well, maybe this is the something greater, or maybe this is just a bump along the way. I don't know. Let me tell you this. History is a lot more fun reading about it than living through it. Anyways, Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community-supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. Today, we are sponsored by ATB, and I want to tell you about ATB's new podcast, The Future Of. You can join Todd Hirsch, ATB's Vice President and Chief Economist, as he connects with special guests who offer unique and useful perspectives about the future. Explore how our economy and communities can not only brace for change, but embrace the opportunity it creates. From the future of women in business to the changing nature of work itself, The Future Of helps us understand what's coming and what we need to do today to get the tomorrow we want. Featuring two episodes each month plus bonus episodes, The Future Of includes interviews with top community and business leaders from Alberta and around the world. Subscribe to The Future Of in the Apple Store, Google Play, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found. And connect to ask your questions about the future by emailing thefutureof at atb.com. This week we are also brought to you by the Alberta Podcast Network, so let's go and listen to one of our other great shows. I'd like to get more reading done, and joining a book club seems like a good idea, but I don't know. Why not? Reading a whole book in a month, that's pretty daunting.
1: What if it was just a chapter, say, a week? That doesn't
0: sound too bad. Still, getting together with a bunch of people, that's a whole evening.
1: Well, what if it was only half an hour, whenever you wanted to?
0: That would be great.
1: The Read Along, a mini book club for your ears.
0: Join my wife, Anita.
1: And my husband, Scott. As
0: we take you on a journey through a good book, one one chapter chapter at at a time. time. A proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown. Community supported. Available right now on your podcatcher of choice. So, Dave, I think where we need to start off with this is we actually received an email, Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com, and talking about thinking about some of the films in a different light. I thought this was a good one. This was actually in response to the Cider House rules that we reviewed, that neither you or I super enjoyed. And then our guest Alex actually did enjoy the movie. Um, way more than, than what we did. Uh, this is actually sent in from a guest that we had on this season, Jennifer Sanford. I'm going to read this whole thing. It's a bit lengthy, but I think it's good to provide the uh, full context. So thank you for answering the question, can and should three men talk about a film with themes of abortion? This film is about three things and you miss them all. First, the moral trade-offs we make between the greater good and individual rights. The Cider House rules themselves demonstrate how structures rarely work, that the world is far more complicated by the actions we take and the way we rationalize them, hence the name of the film. Second, the way abortion is presented in this film matters. Abortion was an act of silence and secrecy, and it's presented that way in the film, I think, on purpose. Here, Michael Caine puts a face of mercy on what had previously been portrayed in film as scary, seedy, distrustful doctor-stereotype. Kane's character represents abortion as an act of love. Just to give that further context, I saw this movie in the theater in 1999 with my mother and I remember her saying Charlize Theron shouldn't be so happy after what she did. Ah, the stigma. Kane's desire to have Homer follow in his footsteps is an act of preserving the grace of this approach. Third, this film was Oscar bait, yes, but it was also an act to get its audience to think about these themes as an extension of the self-actualizing society it could create. You have to remember that America was doing pretty well in a Clinton administration. Teachers made a living wage, the debt seemed manageable, and people were working and living their lives. That's why films like this emerged, to challenge the larger issues of who could be seen as a society. You blew it, guys. The only thing that I agree with you with is this fact, that Toby Maguire can't act his way out of a paper bag. So that was sent in by Jennifer Sanford. Uh, your response to that,
1: uh, Dave? Why isn't she a permanent host? Uh, well... I don't know. A quick response to three well structured arguments for a movie that we had willfully chosen to forgot. forget. Forget. To have forgotten. To forget. I mean, I don't understand, I guess personally, the reference to the name Cider House Rules and the Greater Good. I'm trying to remember the movie in a more immediate fashion. I do think, for example, uh, the second. Point, which was uh, Michael Caine's character, meaning to be countercultural to challenge the idea of the norms of, let's say, abortion or women's rights. Yeah, I mean, I think that's reasonably valid. I think I get lost in a movie's presentation, whether uh, in the entertainment value. So. I I don't remember. I thought we brought up that as a theme, but we I spent most of the time bagging on the, on the performances. performance. <laughs> sure <did. so. laughs> uh,
0: But I mean, I, I think that's where I actually agree the most, which is we tried to start off this podcast by bringing in cultural context a lot of the time. Um, of course, I was a teenager. You were a no-good punk. So <laughs> I tried to, to sometimes bring that jacket. back. Yep. Well, it's it's sometimes really hard to do that when it's like, I also have 21 years of other context and other stuff that we have watched in the meantime, Uh, but I think that if you went back to 1999, you could see how this is very much pushing against that idea, and I think that one thing that we have definitely noticed is in this, watching a bunch of films from 1999 and really steeping that and feeling like, hey, we're in the late 90s, we're seeing what people were concerned with at the time, there is that bubbling of like, hey, things are good but are they really like there's this part of society that we're not really talking about and can't even though the economy is fine monetarily we're okay but societally I, they're we're kind of on this precipice and we're on shaky footing i think that gets repeated in so many of the films that we watched that we kind of sort of missed it in this one which is like of course yeah michael Caine is there to show off Abortion rights uh, are still not 100%, and we've actually seen those challenged here in recent years, in the year 2020, in the United States at the very least. So that fight for those rights are st- is still not over. Uh, and here's a film, 21 years old, that is like, hey, this can actually be an act of love, an act of mercy. It's not some, like, in uh, in the back alleys being done.
1: Yeah, I, no, I'm not uh, thinking of how to argue the principle of it. I, I think, for example, let's say the philosophical and political framework of the question is completely correct and i think that the context of it being 1999 or even whatever what is this movie 19 i mean the the time frame is so ambiguous 1953 or whatever it's supposed to be um, yeah 50s yeah 50s. no
0: he's going up to war so it would have to be the 40s yeah
1: whatever they didn't really put the, the 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 years passing very well but at any rate um well america's always in a war aren't they um so <laughs> yes they are Yeah, maybe I. Yeah, maybe I take it for granted because I uh, have a strong opinion about, you know, for example, talking about abortion that it should not be uh, controversial, (laughs) and uh, and yeah, that definitely leans a bias uh, that I'm going to take it for granted that I won't even see Michael Caine's character as compassion. I just think that's a norm, a normative figure, and uh, and I'm more offended by all the characters around him. I don't. Yeah, I, I miss the idea that this is supposed to be challenging the sort of far right, all oh, puritanical religious right, um, you know, con- conceptualization of abortions. Sure. So, I, yeah, the second point, I think I, I definitely think I don't know if we miss it per se, but definitely we didn't bring it up, or maybe we did, and it, we didn't spend enough time on it. I actually don't even remember what we talked about other than Michael Caine and Toby Maguire.
0: But I mean, it is it is also the thing that it was three guys who. Uh, abortion rights don't immediately impact us on a fundamental level like it would women.
1: Yes, I guess that's, uh, I mean, that's true.
0: I will say, I still don't enjoy the movie as as a film, but I think that is an important aspect that should have been brought into the conversation that was not.
1: I I think it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that if that's what makes it important for people who watch it, that enjoy it, then yeah, I'm not going to argue that. I think for me personally, even having this sort of bias uh, shown at me, I I hate this movie. <laughs> I think there are better movies that challenge this in a much more clear and important emotional and well-produced, well-structured narrative, in my opinion. And I think that uh, this is not a movie that I found to even have a, steer, uh, a clear stated purpose. I think that part we brought up. That we did, yeah. If it was going to be about abortion rights, then it should have been about abortion rights. But it, it tried to mix so many different nuances together; got muddled. But uh, yeah, we definitely didn't spend enough time, I guess, <laughs>
0: on that. Issue. The only thing I want to say, which is a bit of a diversion, but still about the Cider House Rules uh, and something we did not bring up on on the podcast. So uh, to pull the curtain back just slightly, we may or may not have rented the DVD copy from the library. I have never seen such a bad photoshop <laughs> of, the of three people on a poster than that dvd <laughs> copy because if you go online like if you look at the original poster it's fine and on the <laughs> dvd it? yeah. copy it's like <laughs> i can see the tape that they put on almost to, like put these people and like floating heads and awkward like line cuts i'm like who made this dvd cover for this it's awful it is so bad
1: I just have this thought suddenly that maybe somebody at the library had to do it because they didn't maybe. have a cover anymore. Oh, and maybe.
0: The, uh, that could very well be been
1: <laughs> what they did. They had to go printed online and a separate one.
0: Photoshop their own cover because <laughs> it is awful. <laughs> but that's, um, what the, that's totally beside the point.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much time we want to spend on the email. I think it's an important conversation. Uh, but what was the third point?
0: Uh, that is Oscar bait, yes, but it was uh, challenging the mindset of the time. Oh, Second okay. was, yeah, yeah. So we I, we talked about that. Um, is it too late to terminate this podcast? Now that being said, about looking at this list of films that we created over this past year, do you personally think that we underrated or overrated anything?
1: I was trying to go through that. Let me just grab a note here.
0: The big one that I keep coming back to, and again, going back to how we decided to rate these in the first place, um, there was another guest that we had on this show uh, this season, Sarah Rowe from Scream Scene Podcast, which is one of my favorites. I love that they go through every single horror film ever made, uh, and they are currently in the middle of the 1950s. What they do on their show when they rate it, they don't give it a number. They just say, okay, where will we put it inside the list that has already been created? And then have a conversation about where they would actually put it in into the list. Um, because the one thing that I feel it is rated too high, but just based on the average needs to go where it is, is the movie Go. Because I look at the movie Go, and while I did enjoy it, man, I don't know how I feel about things like... The mummy, run the low run, the talented Mr. Ripley, all being below it.
1: You know what's interesting about that is we Yeah, because it landed in the bottom of our fours.
0: It does, yeah. So it's the lowest rated one in our in our fours.
1: And so we're comparing it to the top of our three point fives. I yeah, I when I was looking at that one stood out because to be honest, I don't remember Go that well. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, other than that we both enjoyed watching at the time of yeah. its viewing
0: but to that point again i would have to go back into our list of films and the episodes i wonder if that came after like a run of bad ones <laughs> you know what i mean when we had like there was that stream of ones where we had like four or five bad movies in a row and it was like the first anything that was kind of good i think we might have just latched on to been I mean, like oh it's good <laughs> finally it's somewhat of a good movie
1: Yeah, we should totally look. If it was right after Idle Hands, then we would have easily given this a five, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) which I feel like it's around that time. I don't don't know. I suddenly had this thought. Yeah. Now I'm suddenly looking at all of our border, like all of our bridge numbers. So what's at the bottom of a 3.5 and the top of a three? I would definitely agree with you. I think Go is a little bit high. I actually have been a little bit... I feel like Office Space we watched too early and getting mm-hmm. two fives feels a little high like it's a great movie and I do think that it in some sense, even through nostalgia, should be somewhat of a required watch, but is it a, a it is two, th- a yeah. five five movie? I don't know.
0: Is it the third best film of nineteen ninety nine? I don't Yeah, think so. I don't know about that either.
1: Yeah. So that one felt a little high. I was gonna give you that uh clearly I was just angry about South Park. I don't think it's a 0.5 movie, especially considering all the other 0.5 movies that I had. Once I saw the total list, you know, and I was comparing it to Idle Hands, or Message in a Bottle, right. or Cruel Intentions, or Blair Witch. <laughs> I have a lot of 0.5s. So it's great. <laughs> yeah, it um, yeah, I think South Park is is a better movie than all of those. So I think I was just offended by all of it, and I just want to pick a fight with you, which I think is fun. It was the first one we had an opportunity to really, to go, really at yeah, go at it. To really yeah. go at it, yeah, yeah. Maybe Bond. I mean, I couldn't believe how much you guys were trying to fight that Bond was okay, but, uh... <laughs>
0: it's not as bad as what you tried to make it out to be. Maybe, and, and honestly, maybe because I have seen literally every James Bond film, Yeah, it's like, it's not even my least favorite Pierce Brosnan <laughs> Bond film, so... It's that's like, fair.
1: <laughs> yeah, there are worse Bond movies. That's, yeah. that's fair. But, you know, it was 1999, and, uh... I really disliked watching it. And then the only other thing that I wrote, I don't think these are nearly as uh, interesting, but there's a couple. Like Magnolia might... Like I said, I was doing all of the prep for our social media posts and just watching a couple of those clips of Magnolia. I think my discomfort leaving the movie and missing all of the you know, you guys were sort of uh, doing all that Illuminati shit with numbers and colors and fucking (laughs) background information. Uh, So I was just kind of like, I I didn't get any of it. I don't care. But thinking more about um, just the individual performance and piecing that thing together, you know, it it should be a four maybe instead of 3.5. It it was a good movie. Whether I'd give three hours to it again, probably not.
0: I feel the same way about you. Well, at some point, maybe we can jump in here and actually just rearrange the list uh, how we want to and, uh, you know, retroactively change our opinions.
1: No regrets, man. No regrets.
0: Um, What is the movie, though? Just one. The one movie that you do think that the other person got completely wrong?
1: Oh, uh, other than South Park. Um Well,
0: you can you can choose South Park if you want.
1: <laughs> no, I'm just looking at. It. I mean, I think South Park's the biggest split. I don't think you got it wrong cuz you're obsessed with that show. It's like the Simpsons, you can actually name seasons and episodes. So, I, good, I don't yeah. think Yeah, I don't think we could argue about that. I mean, I think Election is Okay, that's the one I was going to bring up because yeah. I think that you, <laughs> It's
0: actually it was referenced during this election uh, about <laughs> different things that were going on. So the cultural relevance is still there, Dave. <laughs>
1: uh, election. I think we had the and the second biggest split was Blair Witch, and I mm-hmm. think that's like to your first point when we started this the genre specific thing. I I don't like or appreciate horror at all. And oh, you're wrong. I don't like I don't like, uh, like first person anything. I can't play first person shooter games, any of that stuff. So I get uh, sick watching it. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to have a you know, a gavel and podium debate about Blair Witch and its cultural significance. Yeah, maybe I I should give it more credit. But I think it ought to be also acknowledged that it's actually just not a very good movie in its entirety. And it has impact culturally uh, for what it affected on people. But so not on
0: the same level at all. But for me, like, it's not a film that is like in my top 10. It's like, like, (laughs) like, I rated it three and a half. So it's like, it's fine. It's it's a movie that I there's there I get enough out of if if I watch it or when I do rewatch it, but it's never going to be on my top ten, uh, or even my like top one hundred favorite horror films of all time. To me, what it is closely resembled to is that because it had such a cultural impact, and I think you can actually draw the line from its release to online culture to current horror films. There's like you can see how it kind of influenced everything. It's kind of like Birth of a Nation, which is like, it's still talked about because of its cultural influence, but it's kind of a bad movie. In Birth of a Nation's case, I think it's a very bad movie, but like, okay, I get it. It was blockbuster filmmaking back in the silent era. It devised a bunch of different techniques, but it's a bad movie. Like, it's not good. (laughs) You know what I mean? So people still talk about it, even though it's not necessarily a good piece of art, quote unquote.
1: Yeah. Which what are I,
0: your thoughts on Birth of a Nation, Dave? I
1: don't think I've watched it. To <laughs> you be don't. It's with
0: you. it's it's not good.
1: <laughs> um. Yeah. I mean. So other than that, I'm just going through this. I mean, I'm surprised he gave Cruel Intentions a two instead of a point five.
0: Honestly, that's probably mostly because Ryan Philippi is shirtless in a lot of scenes. <laughs> yeah, he's <is> pretty. <laughs> he is. He's a pretty man.
1: Uh. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think we were both surprised throughout the year that we were actually pretty close on many of these although 99 is generally a year where so many of these movies become culture forming or culture insulting that it's hard mm-hmm. to be divisive
0: yeah if we ever picked like a different year to go through who could who could imagine that scenario but oh, if we were it's that, over, yeah yeah good thing it's over but if we were to choose a different year that would be the more interesting thing especially in a year like maybe that neither of us have really a cultural attachment to a
1: footing yeah yeah
0: where it's like, no, no, like I totally disregard this movie. I don't care about it. Versus, like, no, no, I love this movie. So yeah.
1: it would be equally interesting if we had a different side project, like a five minute thing reviewing current movies and just yelling at each other about, uh, you know, for example, that shit and that you read. You know what?
0: There's no podcasts out there that do that. So, you know, <laughs> someone should really fill there's, that niche.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's uh there's a great, great wide gap there for us to fill. I don't know. I don't feel like we argued that much.
0: Yeah. Not, not a whole lot, no. I, I agree with that fact. Basically, when we were starting this podcast, because we had such deep disagreements of current film, I was like, that's totally going to translate to the year 1999. And then we actually did end up agreeing more than we disagreed. Uh, there were some pretty big disagreements, though, on certain films. I will say that. And even sometimes when you go like super negative and I'm negative too, it's like okay, well I'm not that negative <laughs>
1: about yeah. the movie. So I was going to say if, when we look at the aggregate score, I think I just start at a point five lower than you, <laughs> like right. as a principle, uh, just from cynicism. And I also, I would be interested at some point if we were doing a, a rating system based on individual uh, sections, which we can't because it's too big of a project. If there's counterbalancing things, so for example, if we both have a four, but we liked different aspects of the movie and hated you know there may be other things but i don't remember any of the episodes to be just to
0: fill in the audience here after the 51 films that we watched the average rating that i gave was a 3.48 and the average rating that dave gave was a 2.86
1: Just like on the basis of means and averages, I think I am representing (laughs) a a stronger critical eye here because I'm trending to the middle, which means that- You are. Trending to the
0: bottom, I would say.
1: (laughs) And for you to be averaging a 3.48, Kyle, I mean, Mm -hmm. there's- There's some great stuff in
0: 1999.
1: That's pretty soft, dude. That's pretty. 1999
0: is considered one of the best years of films of all time. And I think I represent the people, (laughs) the populace. I'm the populace vote here, Dave. I have the best ratings. I have the better ratings. There's never been a better rating than what I gave.
1: Oh, God, you did that.
0: I'd vote for him. One of the big things that I obsess over that you don't care about at all is the Academy Awards. And so um, I can geek out about that uh, till the cows come home. But uh, I wanted to go through this. If we were given ultimate power, if we somehow became members of the Academy, dare to wish, if we became members of the Academy and we were given a ballot to fill out, who would top your list as you send it back with a kiss and a sealed uh, envelope? So we're going to go through just, uh, I think, six of these categories. Because I'm not going to go through 25 categories or whatever there is. We should uh, do original. 24, I think, actually, nowadays. score. We're going to start off with the acting categories. Okay. Dave, looking at the entirety of 1999, and you don't have to pick even people that were nominated in the categories. I should point that out, too. Just, I don't even know who was
1: nominated. Good. Yet.
0: So who would you have given Best Supporting Actor to in the year 1999?
1: The one nuance with some of the ensemble casts, I don't really know who is considered a supporting actor. Yeah. Actor. So,
0: can I just fill you in on this? Um, the Academy doesn't really have a great ruling on this either. It's really just how the agents fill the paperwork, the, right, basically, right. because there has been very obviously, in my opinion, lead performances that have been put into the supporting acting category. They have a better shot of winning. Um, so, I would say. It's up to you to choose <laughs> how you define a supporting actor role.
1: I made it sort of a short list as I went through all the movies, and I, I don't know if we want to go through. I think I have like 12 names, just people I remember being pretty good in it. Uh, mm-hmm. The one name that came up twice is William H. Macy, which I think is great, but I chose Haley Joel Osment because uh, he was just fucking incredible in that movie and mm-hmm. totally robbed. My runner-up was Christopher Plummer, just because... Uh,
0: yeah, he's so good in The Insider. He was really
1: good in it. And I just like him. He's got the gravitas, right?
0: Christopher Plummer does? Yeah. I will I will say the same thing. Yeah. I just want to jump in here. Uh, uh, Christopher Plummer, again, not even nominated this year Crazy. somehow. But him and Haley Joel Osment were kind of like, I battled between a little bit. I ultimately went with Haley Joel Osment too. I just think that, again, his performance... Is still talked about <laughs> to this day. So I think it has, again, the more cultural touchstone moment. And uh, should have won. He should have won that year.
1: Hey, a quick shout out, too, to like basically the whole Magnolia cast. I mean, oh I my think, gosh,
0: I know. You could have basically filled the entire category with just Magnolia,
1: technically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, John C. Riley, Tom Cruise is incredible. I, again, is Tom Cruise the main character in that movie? I don't know. I don't think anyone is the main character in that movie. That's you, the hard part. You know what I left out, uh, Philip? Uh, whatever. Seymour Hoffman? Seymour Hoffman. Didn't, I didn't even bring him up. That's weird, eh? Oh. He's
0: in two movies this year. And so. he's
1: good in both.
0: How about best supporting actress?
1: I have a bunch. I mean, it's so sexist that this category is very easy to see who the quote-unquote supporting actresses are because there's so few female leads in movies, but I actually went with Helena Bonham Carter. I actually think... In which movie? A Fight Club.
0: Fight Club, okay.
1: Yeah, I thought her uh, train wreck is actually incredibly... Uh, well put together considering the range of weird characters that she can build um and my runner-up was tony colette because i thought that uh final the that final, final i mean she was scene. great in the whole thing but the final car scene is uh, riveting um mm-hmm. i mean angelina jolie is good i like close of too
0: yeah uh, i mean that's the thing like you watch like they did give it to angelina jolie for boys don't cry nope For girl interrupted Uh, Interrupted. for for girl interrupted this year and it's a good performance um the movie's fine too but again not great but i mean it's it's a fine it's a really good performance in that movie that makes it i think raise up yeah um but i actually went to tony collette too i i I took a look at this again with fresh eyes this year the fact that this is tony collette's only nomination she's ever received is somewhat of a travesty in my opinion because i think tony collette is amazing but secondly, again, I don't think that the movie works. I don't think The Sixth Sense works without her and Haley Joel Osment being cast in those two roles. Otherwise, Which... I don't think it would have been raised up to the level that we often think about it with. M. Night definitely has some great framing and directs it very well, but it's those two performances, I think, that raise it up to being phenomenal. Talking about not knowing if you should uh, give a supporting actor or actor like how you'd make that decision, my choice for best actor this year would probably get a bit of pushback. But I went back and forth with this. I'm like, oh, like who actually for me gave the best performance? And I thought I was going to say Denzel Washington in The Hurricane because I I thought he, again, did a great, great job. But ultimately I was like, you know what the one that actually affected me the most and I think that actually took the most work was... John Malkovich in being John Malkovich now some people would say that he's the supporting character but I was like well his name's in the title and he's in basically the entire every scene in like the last half of that movie so I'm like I'm saying he's a he's a full-on like lead actor in that role uh not even nominated that year by the way but uh yes I would have given it to John Malkovich I think
1: I had him in the supporting actor category and uh he's amazing I just I don't know I thought Haley Joel Osment was better interestingly i put uh, john cusack for mm. his creepster and uh a couple of things that i liked uh, jim carrey i thought should have been nominated he was right. his uh his madness is uh very fun to
0: watch he, he was a very close second for me i was like oh like i probably if if we're talking about the truman show it would have been jim carrey <laughs> um
1: for sure I, I mean matt damon's pretty good out there and tom hanks peed really well and uh <laughs> I had trouble with Fight Club. Like, is Ed Norton or Brad Pitt the main character? Who knows? I mean, they're the same person. Um, but ultimately, Whoa, I actually, spoiler over here. <laughs> I actually put uh, John Cusack. I thought and wow. Jim Carrey second. Yeah, I was tossing between the two of them. But I thought John Cusack's broken downness was uh, was something to watch. It really, like you talk about, it's so essential to that movie.
0: Um, I I would have to look at his full like IMDb ratings. Can you think of another film that John Cusack has been in since being John Malkovich that you're like, oh my gosh, it's John Cusack? Uh,
1: well, 2012. <laughs> the a Apocalypse movie? 2012? movie, 2012?
0: Yeah, yeah, Oh, the Apocalypse movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just 2012 in general.
1: That was a good year. Yeah, you know, when I was doing his write-up, I mean, he's got a pretty, like many of these people, he's a very contentious personality, so I don't know. I mean, I think he peaked in 99, uh, his... His uh, career prior to this movie is quite, quite great. He's got yeah, a lot of... Yeah, yeah
0: he had a lot of stuff in the 90s. Isn't
1: High Fidelity... Is High Fidelity like Fidel in this? the 90s. Yeah, oh, is it no. before this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, like, movies like that are good. I didn't watch the uh, Be- uh, Beach Boys movie. I heard he's good in that, but... Uh, I don't even know what that is. He he and Philip Dano were both Brian whatever... You mean Paul Jano. Paul Dano. We're both Brian whatever from the Beach Boys. Wilson, yeah. In different eras. Uh, talk oh, about Lord. his, is it alcoholism or bipolar disorder? Or uh, both? Yeah,
0: he has a few things yeah. going on. Uh, anyone who decides to use a theremin in a pop song <laughs> is not all there, Dave.
1: <laughs> um, uh, yeah.
0: All right, how about best actress? Who would you give best actress to?
1: I, I went with the Academy. I think Hilary Swank. I don't best. know who else
0: you would give it to this Cameron year, to Diaz be perfectly I put, honest.
1: I put Cameron Diaz as best actress. I, again, is she a supporting role? I think she carried the movie, frankly. I thought she was great. She's man.
0: really good in being John Malkovich, yeah. for sure. But yeah, yeah uh, looking at everyone else, I'm like... There's
1: no lead roles, man.
0: I mean, again, even though I don't enjoy that movie whatsoever, I think Hilary Swank puts in like this amazing performance inside of it. It's like, I don't know how else to honor that other than... Saying like, yeah, here it is. Like you earned this.
1: I threw in. I mean, I liked Franco Potente a lot in Run Lola Run, but yeah. As far as at least the you know onslaught of American movies, plus the fact that the, you know no, almost none of them center around a female lead character, so it's hard to call it the best actress. Uh, yeah, a pretty like, dry I mean, pool, man.
0: That's really eye opening. And I'm <laughs> again, if we were to go like even earlier than 1999, let's just say that crazy thing happened. That's even going to be worse, like, trying to find, like, great roles for for women. Whereas, honestly, like, look at the year 2020, and there has been multiple films. Not just, like, directed by women, written by women, but starring women that have been putting in really great performances here this year. So, um, a bunch of things have changed over the last 20 years, for sure. Not 100% parody yet, but it's changing.
1: I, I can't remember... I think I brought up in this podcast and I can't remember where I read it. It might have been a TED talk on YouTube or something, but they're talking about uh the context of cultural change actually being in centuries and not in years. So, you know, we do have this entitlement as a culture that once you're woke, everything should change. So, we know right. that minorities don't get enough say that uh the LGBTQ uh community doesn't get enough say that women don't get enough say. Why can't we make it, why can't we have parody? But we're, it takes time. The people, the old guard who writes these movies yeah. have to die out first because they're not letting go of this power. The old directors who uh, want to shoot it a certain way through this you know, male colonial lens, right? Uh, mm-hmm. They've got to die. They're not going to not get the money uh, to make blockbuster films. But we are seeing a big change, for better or for worse, I don't know. Some of these nominations have come out I don't know if I like the movies themselves, but it is nice at least to see, yeah, stronger female characters, stronger minority representation. It's a lot to ask, but it is a little bit jarring because I do feel like there are a lot of great performances in all history from female actors, of course, oh, yeah. but they're not written for them. So it's kind of, kind of sad. How about
0: Best Director? Who would you have given Best Director to?
1: I uh, I actually gave it to P.T. Anderson.
0: Oh, Interesting. Um,
1: I think I I was tossing that with Spike Jones just because I liked being John Malkovich's weird sort of put together. And I put, I mean, the directors were great. I've got Spike Jones, the Wachowskis, Dave Fincher, Shyamalan, Kubrick's in there for me. I mean, the list is insane. This is like all historical. Yeah, like looking at just like the role of a
0: director uh, for the film, this is the hardest one (laughs) for me to really settle on. Because you're right. It's like the Wakowski's pulled off something phenomenal yes. with The Matrix and they really should like have nominated. they they should have been nominated but like they got that movie received all the technical awards basically and no other nominations it's like that's too bad like there's a lot of stuff here that uh should have been honored uh but you're right like Michael Mann, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, Spike Jones, M Night like all of these people are doing really great work for this crop of films that came out this year. David Fincher, we didn't even talk about David Fincher.
1: Yeah, Fight Club should have been nominated too. I I just think whatever my feeling is with Magnolia, et cetera, like as an entire experience, piecing that ensemble together, structuring in the way they did. I think if, again, you know how I feel about that movie, taking out the intro and making it turn into like, seeming that's it's going to be this tight little bow. I, I thought that was irritating, but... It's a, it's a magnum opus, man. The thing's like three hours. It's, it's got so many different things. It's wound so tightly that it grabs your interest for the entire three hours. That's a big undertaking. The only other movies in my mind, I mean, I think being John Malkovich, The Matrix, Fight Club, they all do something similar in their scope, but you know. I, I went with P. T. Anderson.
0: I actually went with Spike Jones in this case. I think that that is such a tight film. John Malkovich is pretty tight too. And it's weird and odd in the very best way. And I love like just oddball films anyways. but he walks this tightrope of not making it convoluted. too <laughs> in, absurd in my opinion, or yeah. too absurd. It's like it's absurd, but it, but not like going into like complete like zany town. And I think the performances that he helps to capture in that are just, you know, really good. So, Spike Jones. Now, I'm doing something that the Academy very rarely does, which is I'm actually splitting the film, who I'm giving best director to, and best picture to. Who would you give the best picture of the year to, Dave? Uh,
1: The best picture is the hardest. Like, again, the genre is the biggest problem. It's hard Mm -hmm. to just narrow one down. I mean, I think there are so many different ways to look at best film. Uh, I think by our ratings, I gave Being John Malkovich the winning spot, but I think mm-hmm. The Matrix should have been nominated and in serious contention by Club Sixth Sense. Um, but I, in the end, I went Being John Malkovich for the exact reasons that you're describing about Spike Jones. So I think that being able to straddle the line of a surrealist, absurd fantasy but actually make it dramatic and compelling. That's a rare visual treat.
0: I was very close to doing that, but ultimately, I did give Best Picture to The Sixth Sense. I think it does this really fascinating magic trick for me, which it is simultaneously a movie I can watch and not like devote a lot of my brain energy to. It's just isn't a fun film to watch for me. Or if I'm in that mood, I can be looking at it for like deeper meanings and like the relationship between Haley Joel Osment and Tony Collette and and all that sort of thing. So you can get both of those responses back depending on what mood you happen to be in. So I don't know. I I just love the fact that it's able to straddle that line really nicely. And that uh, at least here in the year 2021 that we're sitting in right. is is the Happy movie New year. that I would award, But that's the movie that I would awarded you know, 22 years ago, (laughs) the best picture award too.
1: I think, I mean, just a quick shout out again to my amended genre free list, you know, I, and I agree with everything you said. I think in that regard, going from both popcorn flick and having deeper uh, sort of sensibilities, I think the matrix should have easily been Mm -hmm. a runner up because it has all of those elements. Um, and fight club is not underrated in a broader cultural sense anymore, but that's a really well-crafted movie, too. You want to talk about a mm-hmm. twist. It does everything Sixth Sense does, but much more brutal and violent. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, it's not as fun. It's fun for me, but it's not universally fun, per se. But yeah, it's, it's,
0: a, it's more brutal uh, yeah. going through that experience.
1: And that's Fincher, too. He's not a. He doesn't yeah. seem like a very pleasant person to be around. He's got a lot of angst. That dude. His movies are very angry. So I've liked most of them. I
0: would but. agree with that. <laughs> they are angry films. Well, Dave, I guess as just a kind of a wrap up here, uh, as we as we finish off this uh, podcast project, anything that you can think of to finish off talking about 1999 with any like grand themes, anything else that you think we need that needs to be said?
1: Just one thing. I think the worst move of the year ties between Message in a Bottle and Idle Hands, and I think anyone mm-hmm. listening just don't. Just scratch those off the history. They're awful. Um, I think Jennifer's email sort of encapsulates this sense that 1999 is clearly the point where the cracks are forming in the wall. The beautiful bubble of the glorious American dream is about to break. The dam is going to split open.
0: And know what's interesting about that? The, the, the more I've been thinking about that, we mentioned quite a few times, like this is like. Leading up, because we know in the fullness of time, 2001, 9 11 happens and that dam kind of bursts. I actually do think that we were headed there no matter what. I think 9 11 expedited that crumbling of the like the American imperialism uh, machine, but I think we would have gotten there regardless. And I think 1990 shows like we were grappling with this. Um, and then that, that's when, when those planes hit, it kind of came tumbling down societally as well and it took a couple years for movies I think to catch up with grappling with those those themes fully.
1: I remember you brought this up a lot in the first half of the year but I think the movies turned away from it a lot but you know particularly with the Matrix episode I mean this was the year of the column like the beginning of the public Mm -hmm. mass history of of the school shootings and the sort of gun violence uh, yeah. taking over the news feed. And we were entering the internet era where news was about to become uh, not just pervasive, but infectious. Like we couldn't turn it off anymore. You know, back in the day, like in Toronto, we had the that serial killer, fucking Paul Bernardo, that pig. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, so like when something like that happens, every newspaper, of course, like whatever you buy, left, right, mi- mainstream, whatever, the front page is going to be about this grizzly thing that happened. And then the trial, um, and so it becomes a cultural event. But then, you know, if you don't buy a newspaper, the spaces in between, you can just have a normal life. Uh, well, the
0: thing about 1999, though, I mean, this is, again, like old man talking here now.
1: This will certainly get the younger demographic to
0: listen to the podcast. You were able to turn that off. Exactly. I think a little bit easier. But that there was, was over- absolutely 24-7 news channels by 1999. We had not gotten uh, satellite television yet, so it was not on at my house. Uh, We got the local paper and that was basically the news content It was like 6 o'clock from 6 to 6.30. The newspaper, the local newspaper, and that was basically my news intake uh, versus like sketches I watched on Saturday Night Live for their like interpretation of what was happening in the news. So when when you change that from like 24-7 news channels as well as social media where you're getting alerts basically sent to your device and being like, this is why you should be outraged and angry and like upset and your world is crumbling um, on a constant basis. Like just, that's just a different society we're living in at this point.
1: I think, yeah, exactly. And I think that's why a movie like the matrix exists because that technological moment, I mean, I remember the idea of the Valley of the real and how 1999 was like the pinnacle of human. I mean, how prescient was that? It's, uh, it's an interesting idea about how technology and people were writing books around that time already that, uh, technology was about to again, break the dam. 9-11 was, uh, a stick of dynamite, dynamite wedged into that thing and just blew the whole thing open. But like you said, it was going to happen regardless. Uh, if it wasn't the Twin Towers, which is so depressing in general, it would have been something the month after. I don't fucking know. The, the world was uh, at a boiling point. Um, it still is. It's boiled over. And, uh, and we're seeing that these cracks and this hollowness of that culture preexisted 9-11 by many decades. Oh, yeah. So,
0: Again, that's the big thing from The Insider, right? Like, when you look at The Insider, like, oh, like, they made a movie yeah. in 1999 about stuff that was happening earlier in the 90s that became very relevant two years later. Yeah. And, like, you kind of only know that in, by looking backwards it in time. So. But, I mean, that small scene that happens in The Insider for, like, whatever it is, five minutes, we'll say, it probably isn't even that long. Had I watched it in 1999, it's like, oh yeah, this is just context setting. Great, they're over in the Middle East. Now is like so much more prescient to me. Like, oh my gosh, like they were. We knew this was happening. We just didn't really know it was happening.
1: Uh, The only, the only other thing, you know, going back to very sort of uh, a cultural statement is we get to see when we do something like this. We're a full year. We've cataloged all of the creative output. It is one industry, but. Sure. I think that a lot of- So we should have added
0: in books and TV and-
1: My point is, uh, I mean, we could, we could try uh, as if we're not overwhelmed enough as it is. But I think one of the things that's been lost over the last two decades is that art is intertwined with intellectual and philosophical discussion. And I think that a schism is building between those two things where intellectual, you know, thought process of rationality has twisted into politics too much and- You know, like look at uh, the hopefully passing uh, pandemic of coronavirus where people are yelling at scientists saying that they're lying. I don't want a vaccine because you're putting microchips in like fucking insane stuff because now we're at a war with science. Could science build a machine like me? I don't think so. Art is sort of been kind of laid by the wayside. It's turned into Instagram, which is garbage. And here's an example where... The artists, the writers, cinematographers, directors, actors, they actually, whether it's intuitive or intentional, they have their hand on the heartbeat of culture, uh, of of seeing what's really happening uh, behind the curtain. Whether they choose to use that in a, a constructive way becomes the director and the production company's sort of uh, bias. I think this is why I love movies so much and books and media and all this stuff. Is, like you said, there's an element where if I want to turn my brain off, I don't have to think about it. But there's an element where if we want to, we can see a deeper meaning in all of it. I think
0: the great artists, yes, the great artists hold up a mirror to society, or at least that's one of their goals and aims. Obviously, I think in the film industry or the film business, as they call it, right? The second where there is business. So it's it a is. business to make money. Yes. Um, but there's that expression. In the film industry, I mean, bare minimum, most of these films would have been like from 18 months from like idea to like going into theaters. Some of them might be two to three years from from that time period. So it's also like this weird thing where this is kind of also from 96 up till 99, the things that people were thinking about coming to the, to the forefront here in 1999. And secondly, I think that what it is showing is, hey, we can be entertaining while also having... A point, which also makes me so mad when people going like, you know, when we went to the movies, like people didn't try and shove politics down our throat. And it's like, well, like The Matrix is a pretty political movie if you want to <laughs> really break it down. Uh, like even looking at some of other things, like being John Malkovich is like I brought up in our conversation about that is very apropos to social media and how we interact with like at- online avatars and stuff like that online. uh Fight Club, um, even like Galaxy Quest. As much of that is satire is like, boy, like that kind of predates like really hardcore celebrity culture the way it is even now. So I think that, yeah, it's there. I will say this for myself. I didn't think there would be as much gay content in these films as there actually is. Um, And not not even subtext, like there's text sometimes (laughs) inside of these things uh, that I think is sometimes forgotten about. So yeah, there's all this interesting stuff kind of wrapped up here in the year 1999. Like you said, I think it's a that boiling point. And part of it too is like, again, I was 16 years old. I would have turned 16 in the year 1999. Like for me, this is like, oh, this is like the good old days, right? Like the late 90s for me is like, these are the good times, like the best time of my life type of thing. So I think sometimes that influences the way I think about that. But I think what's interesting is we've always been struggling with uh, inequality and oppression and some of these films uh, fight it de- uh, head-on and some of them are just there to have a good old time at the theater.
1: Just to be a cynic as is obvious from this As sitting, is your role um, on the show. We will always struggle with those things. Even as we find so-called parody with all of the minority statuses that we are aware of now. If history shows us anything it is part of human nature to put other people into boxes. So if we start, for example, like you brought up, the gay content is already starting to increase. I mean, I think because it's Hollywood and the art industry, that wow. is yeah. subtexted throughout its entire history, right? But it's mm-hmm. become very open now.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's also the thing too. Like in the film industry, there was people who were, <laughs> who were in- obviously injecting gay. It and like yeah. everybody knew it, but there's no one talked about it, right? Yeah. So it's not it, like, just it was watch, an open secret.
1: Just watch Lawrence of Arabia. Right. It's not just that he's drunk all yeah. the time, but you know, I, uh, so cynically we'll always have the struggle, but I think what's optimistic is I think creativity uh, in the movie industry or otherwise, fucking even painting, finger painting, even looking at children's art, any level in which somebody makes something out of nothing will be, like you said, a mirror holding up to something. And as long as we support both the entertainment and the intellectual side of it, I think we'll be, we'll have access to a forum in which we can continually try to learn stuff. That forum is being a little twisted, not just by the, uh, uh, what do you call it, the the show business aspect, but, um, you know, social media is a sickness. (laughs) But uh, we'll see. Something's going to happen, you know. There's a lot of people who are trying their best to be nicer to other people, as much as the opposite is true. So um, we'll look at the movies that are, eventually going to be allowed to release in 2021 actually
0: yeah just bringing up to to modern day i am actually very interested to see how we actually look back at this time let's say that this podcast continues on for another 10 years it would be interesting to go back and like let's talk about the films of 2020 yeah. Um, it's like, well, we're not talking about things that came out in theaters because most of them didn't. They all went say, straight to streaming. But to have they were. had any cultural impact because they did premiere on streaming services? Um, I think it's a little bit harder to get into the cultural zeitgeist that way. It's still possible, it's just harder to do that, especially now that there's like two dozen different streaming services. And so like this debuted on Peacock, and it's like, great, I can't even access that. Yeah. Or like us in Canada, we don't get Hulu. So any Hulu film. We can't watch, I'm still bitter. Um, not legally, I guess uh, we should we should point out. But that on the flip side of that in 2021, because we're going to be loading all these huge films that had to, like, uh, bypass this year. That's also going to be interesting to be like this. Do those films feel like, oh, like this does not feel current anymore? Or are they going to be looked at even more favorably because they're just trying to think back to a, a time that didn't even exist when they were made in the first place?
1: I was watching, uh, I guess, Biden, Joe Biden. Now, who's that? uh, At the time of this uh, recording, apparently announced his, I don't know, do they call it cabinet in the States? Anyways, his advisors. And the woman that's going to be in charge of their, um, what is it, health or, I don't know what their terms are there, but they showed her on a 2018 TED Talk talking about pandemics. If you believe that sort of thing. And so what's also interesting to me is, uh, in hindsight, A, whether if we look back at the movies and literature for the last five years, how they may have been... I mean, everybody talked about Contagion when this thing came out, but if there was already kind of like 99, some uh, themes that were coming out to forewarn us that this inevitably, if not coronavirus, at least the way the world was going to react to it. And then in the next five to 10 years, how many fucking movies are going to be about viruses? I know. I know. (laughs) It's going to be all of them, man. It's going to be so annoying. Yeah. Anyways, movies...
0: So here's the big question, then, Dave. If we were to continue this podcast, uh, because of course the machine is releasing the shackles off of us here this week, like what year would you want to do another retrospective of?
1: We have to do this again.
0: If we if we were to do it, I mean, well, what a, what a w- ridiculous thing to even pause it here in this case. But if we were to continue this show, what would you? All right.
1: Well, let me run down some of my favorite movies. All I mean, I just rewatched Seven Samurai. I love Blade Runner. Something. Yeah, 1950. (laughs) Blade Runner is 83. I think Uh, 84. 84 gives us Return of the Jedi, which is kind of shit. We could do When Star Wars 1977.
0: Sorry, Dave. Sorry, this machine is like. I'm still talking here, Kyle. So, but the sorry, the, the machine is like freaking out over here. What does it do? I think the ceiling tiles are falling down here. Why do you have
1: ceiling tiles?
0: I don't know. I just installed them last week. Ah, I I put a deposit down on those.
1: Uh, What do we do? What do we do?
0: I don't know. Uh, Well, the the guest door has flung itself open. Dave, remember the first rune? No. Okay, (laughs) Okay, well... Thank you for remembering our deep and quality fiction that we've been making with this podcast. But it said, when the time comes, go through.
1: I, I don't, Here. I don't. Hold, this, hold, this hold my hand, a... Dave. All this right, just I'm a... ready.
0: Okay, let's go. Let's go. It's all smoky in here. What is, is there a light?
1: Uh, there's a little metal string hanging from the ceiling. Just. Okay.
0: Oh, I don't know what this place is. It's like a very cramped circular area. There's a computer and a panel over there.
1: This feels very Kubrick-esque.
0: And something's printing out here, Dave. Oh, well, it says next week we're going to be talking about Spirited Away. Oh. somehow i don't think that uh we're off the hook just yet
1: huh. for a moment i thought we were in purgatory but that's going to be a good movie to watch so all right let's do it
0: well we we still could be in purgatory <laughs> but I, gu- I guess we are continuing on talking about film so
1: wait does that mean i can't go home
0: uh n- no but look luckily enough it looks like there's a vending machine over here funyuns
1: mm. it's only funyuns <laughs>
0: Could science build a machine like me? I don't think so.